Tonight, we will explore the question, what essences can we extract from our life? Last Friday, Marcia talked about Kamma. Kamma are volitional actions that produce results and in this way greatly influence our lives. So as we are heir, heirs of our Kamma, we want to make sure that we engage in wholesome actions. And wholesome actions are, as Marcia said, a certain kind of refuge. So given the importance of wholesome and beneficial actions, we need a good and basic understanding of what is considered to be wholesome. So in tonight's talk, we will have a look at this issue. I want to begin with a verse from the Dhammapada. In this verse, the Buddha gave a summary of his and actually all the Buddha's teaching. That's the verse. To avoid all evil, to cultivate good, and to purify one's mind. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas. In essence, the teaching aims at the purification of one's heart and mind in order to come to a deep and true understanding of all phenomena. And this should be free from our uh, ideas, opinions or prejudices. We can say that meditation is a journey into the depth of our heart and mind. And this is not an easy undertaking. On the contrary, it is one of the most challenging adventures in our life. To penetrate into the deep jungle of the Amazonas or to climb the highest mountain on this earth seems like a piece of cake. Nowhere else are we so much confronted with our own limits as on this expedition into the far away corners of our heart and mind. So we need a big portion of courage and perseverance to not give up. To face this challenge well prepared, the Buddha mentioned time and again how important it is to be virtuous, that is, not to harm any living being with our actions of body and speech. In the verse from the Dhammapada, this is expressed with the first two lines, to avoid all evil, to cultivate good. In other words, this means to cultivate wholesomeness in body and speech. 
but to simply cultivate wholesome actions of body and speech is not enough. It's a good beginning and a good pace. But even more important is the purification of the heart and mind. And this is expressed with the third line of the verse, to purify one's mind. And so the question arises, what is wholesome or what is beneficial? What is good? Or what kind of actions give wholesome results? What kind of actions lead to beneficial uh, effects? And then to ask what is considered to be unwholesome? What is not beneficial? Or which kind of actions lead to unwholesome, to unbeneficial results? So tonight we will have a look at these questions and see how we can live our life to bring out the best of it. How can we make use of our life and our belongings to bring out the greatest benefit possible? Or what is the essence of our life? Every now and again, we should reflect about the fact that it is not to be taken for granted that we were born as human beings. In the Buddhist teaching, we have six different worlds or realms into which beings can be reborn. Two of these worlds are visible for us, the world of human beings and the world of the animals. Besides these two realms, there is the world of the Asuras. These are kind of demonic titans. Then we have the world of the Petas, the hungry ghosts, and the world of the hell beings. These three worlds, together with the world of the animals, belong to the so-called lower realms. Then we have the world of the devas and the world of the brahmas and these are called the heavenly realms. And the human realm lies in between the lower and heavenly realms. With the help of the following simile, the Buddha showed how difficult it is to be reborn in the human realm, to be reborn as a human being. And so the Buddha said, or used this uh, simile, a needle is put into the earth so that it points up to the sky. And then another needle is dropped from high above in the sky and so now the chance that the needle dropped from the sky will hit the point of the needle stuck in the earth, this chance is still greater than the chance of being reborn as a human being. 
So then, to be a human being, to be a reborn as a human being, what does it mean? Or how does a human being differ from other living beings? As human beings, we have the ability to think. We can have a look at the situation with a rational mind. And so we can come to a logical conclusion. And with this ability to differentiate, we can recognize the good from the bad. Or we can separate the wholesome from the unwholesome. Or in other words, we can know what is beneficial and what is not. And we also can differentiate uh, if an action brings only a short-term benefit or if it is beneficial in the long run. To be a human being also means that we are living beings consisting of two different phenomena. That's mental phenomena and physical phenomena. And the combination and working together of these two phenomena is what we call a human being. Now for a new existence to arise, there need to be certain causes and conditions. And there are four main conditions. The first one is avicca, which is ignorance or not knowing the true nature of all phenomena. It's a distorted and wrong view of how things are. And so based on this ignorance, living beings are not able to see the characteristics of anicca, dukkha, anatta, asuba, and asara, which means they are not able to see the characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, not-self, impurity, and that things are without an essence or substance. And every form of life is subject to these characteristics, be it as a human being, a deva, or an animal. Then a second cause for existence to arise is craving, or tanha in Pali. Tanha is sometimes also translated as thirst. All the times we thirst for the pleasure of the senses, our desires, cravings, and greed are without end. And due to ignorance, we crave for life, we crave for existence or non-existence. Then the third cause is upadana or clinging. This is a stronger form of craving. 
we can compare Upadana with the hand that does not let go anymore once it has uh, grasped something. Tanha, however, is like the hand that is stretching out all the time to get something. And then the fourth cause is Kama, meaning intentional actions. So it's the intention or the volition behind the bodily, verbal or mental action that is called Kama. And wholesome intentional actions lead to good results. Unwholesome intentional actions lead to bad results. So if we look for the essence in our life, we should also be clear about what we mean by essence. So what we take as essence should be something that cannot be destroyed, something that has long-lasting and beneficial results, and something that is conducive for our well-being and contentment. And as a true essence, it should also be helpful in reaching our goal of liberation or enlightenment. Just as a piece of hardwood cannot be destroyed by rain, termites, other bugs or environmental influences, so it should not be possible for this essence to be destroyed by any outer influences or enemies. As I said before, our life consists of mental and physical phenomena, or differently expressed, it consists of a body and a mind. In addition to this, there is something else in our life that plays an important role, and these are our material possessions. So we have these three parts which play an important role in our life. We have our material possessions, our body and our mind. So when we look for an essence in these three parts, what can we find? Or what essences can we extract from our material belongings, from our body and from our mind? First, we'll have a look at our material possessions. I think we have all seen a hamster filling its cheek with a lot of food. We human beings are not so different. We too spend a lot of time in gathering things, collecting things, accumulating material possessions. We keep collecting more and more things 
And then people think that these material possessions belong to them. Then they assume that they are the owners of these things. And with that, they have to protect these belongings from thieves or uh, other dangers. So then they put them carefully away or hide them in a safe. And on top of that, they take out an insurance policy against theft or damage caused by fire or water. But all these precautions are still no guarantee that our possessions cannot be stolen or destroyed. In the Buddhist scriptures, it is said that there are five enemies that can destroy uh, our possessions. These five enemies are fire, the second is water, the third one is theft, the fourth one is confiscation by the government or by the authorities, and the fifth one are disloyal children. So the first two enemies, fire and water, belong to the destruction caused by nature. And so we can also include the destruction caused by earthquakes or avalanches or mudslides. Almost daily we can read in the news that somewhere on this globe a hurricane or a bushfire or a tsunami uh, has destroyed houses and caused much damage. Then the three remaining enemies caused the destruction of our possessions through the misuse of power, force or domination. As much as we take care or take precautions, there is no guarantee that we will not lose our material possessions. So if the essence is not found in the possession of these things, if the essence is not found in the material things themselves, what is the essence that we can extract from these things? How can these things, material possessions, be helpful in our search for happiness and freedom? Is there an indestructible essence to be found in these things? The essence that we can extract from material possessions is dana. Dana, which means generosity, offering, giving. Dana is a virtue that is dormant in all human beings. It's the quality of the heart that moves a person 
to give away his or her possessions for the welfare of other living beings. Giving, offering opens the heart and it counters such unwholesome mental states as stinginess, self-centeredness and miserliness. The quality of dana nourishes and helps to develop the qualities of an open heart, of generosity and compassion. During an act of giving, our heart is filled with joy and we can expand this feeling of joy uh, to before and after the actual act of giving. So for example, when we go shopping for the things that we need for the dana or when we prepare what we want to offer, we already feel happy and elated about the dana that we are going to perform. And when we reflect uh, on the dana that we have performed, again, we can feel happy and full of joy. On my uh, second trip to Australia, that was in 1991, I visited Canberra with a friend of mine. As we were walking in the pedestrian zone of downtown Canberra, we came across an elderly woman who distributed little bowls of steaming uh, hot soup to all the bypassers. And so she also invited the two of us to have some soup. So we stopped and she filled two bowls with the steaming soup from a huge pot. It was a very delicious vegetable soup, obviously prepared with a lot of care and love. And as I was eating the soup, I looked around for a sign or a poster to find out what kind of organization or group was distributing the soup. But I couldn't find anything that gave me any clues. And so I went up to this uh, woman with, the, with a very kind face and asked her for which or organization or group she was doing this. And so she replied that it was not done by any organization or group, but she said that this was her private offering to the needy as well as all the bypassers. And then she continued to explain that from her monthly government welfare check, she put away all the money that was left after paying for her rent, food and insurance. You know, she said, other women spend the extra money on beautiful clothes or expensive makeup. But I don't need all of these. It fills my heart with joy and it makes me much more happy 
when I can offer this pot of soup every Friday afternoon. And with these words, she turned around and filled another bowl of, uh, of soup that she gave to a middle-aged businessman. So the merit gained by this wholesome action of generosity, it cannot be destroyed by anything or anybody. It cannot be stolen or taken away. No fire, no mudslide can destroy the acquired merit, nor can it be confiscated by the government. Thieves can search the whole house and even carry away the safe, but they cannot get hold of our merit. Dana is what we can extract from our material possessions and what becomes the essence. There is a great power in these acts of generosity and their positive outcomes can contribute a lot to our happiness, to our well-being and to our contentment. Very often the Buddha started his talks with the topic of giving, as it is such an important quality on our spiritual path. It can be said that it is the basis of the whole path, or it's like a foundation on which the following steps are based. At one time, the Buddha said, If you knew what I know about generosity and the results of giving, you would not let one single day go by without giving something to someone else. Do, do Vini was a Catholic woman and an English professor at the University of Mandalay in Burma. And she had been known as a very generous person, always sharing what she had with those in need. At her funeral, the priest told the story of how, of how once after a mass, she saw, no, the priest said um, that how he saw her call a man who obviously was in need. And so Dovini asked this man to go and buy two loaves of bread, two tins of condensed milk and some packets of coffee. And she gave him uh, the money for it. And so when the man returned, she took half for herself and gave the other half to him. And so the priest pointed out that Dovini never gave from a position of power, but she always gave from a position of equality, from a position of mutual sharing.
Then the second part in our life that plays an important role is our body. As long as we are alive, we regard this body as something more or less permanent and we see it as our body. We think that this body belongs to us and we can do with it what we want, at least to a certain degree. So we think that we have power and control over this body. But as soon as we get sick, we have to admit that we have actually no control over this body. The pain in the ear does not simply disappear because we want it to go away. Or if we have caught a nasty cold, we cannot simply say, go away now, I don't want you, I want to be fit. This control is only uh, a very superficial or imaginary control and it actually dissolves into nothing as soon as we really want to make use of it. And we also know that at the time of death we have to leave this body behind and then it will start to decompose and rot away. Even if we take this body apart and check each part of the body for a permanent essence, we have to admit that there is actually nothing permanent, nothing that is everlasting. And the Buddha said that this body is the seat of 96 kinds of sicknesses. The lungs can become the seat for various diseases. There are numerous um, diseases rel related to the heart. Then the eyes or the ears can become infected and so on. And there is no part in this body that cannot become the seat uh, for an illness. At one time, a monk asked the Buddha what people mean uh, by saying sickness. And the Buddha said that this actually refers to the body. Or if one had to point out or point one's finger towards sickness, then one has to point the finger towards uh, the body. A Buddhist contemplation that is frequently practiced takes the so-called 32 parts of the body as its object. Uh, these 32 parts, uh, they start with the hair of the head, the hair of the body, the nails, the skin, and it includes the lungs, the heart, flesh, urine, pus, and so on. 
And so contemplating these 32 parts, one comes to see that each of these 32 parts is not permanent. And there is nothing that we could extract as an essence. At the beginning of this talk, I said that it is avijja or ignorance that makes us see things in the wrong way. And so this reflection, the reflection on the 32 parts of the body, aims at the profound understanding of the body's nature, the body's impermanence. And it should also be helpful to overcome uh, our vanity and obsession with external beauty. People often spend so much time worrying and obsessing about their health, or then they try very hard to prevent or to hide the, the signs of aging. And by doing so, they neglect to cultivate the inner beauty. Very often the Buddha had to make this point clear. And a number of times he had to break his disciples' vanity and pride in order to make them see things in the right way. And the story of the Queen Kema is a fam famous example of this. Queen Kema was so infatuated with her beauty that she refused to go and see the Buddha. But King Bimbisara, her husband and a devout disciple of the Buddha, so he had to use a little trick to make her go to the Buddha's monastery. Queen Kema um, went in the morning thinking that the Buddha was out on arms round. That's what she had heard. And so she thought if she would go to the monastery in the morning, then she could avoid to see the Buddha. And so as she walked through the monastery, also um, peeping into the Buddha's uh, little hut, she saw him sitting there. And next to the Buddha uh, was a very young and extremely attractive woman who was fanning the Buddha. And Queen Kema had never seen such a beautiful woman. And she had to admit that this young woman was as beautiful, if not even more beautiful than herself. And so, in great amazement, she stood there, almost staring at this extremely beautiful young woman. And then the Buddha, with his supernormal power, he let this young, beautiful woman slowly grow older. So then her skin became wrinkled, the hair, uh, turned gray and then white, 
and the beautiful teeth started to be turn yellow and later one uh, by one fell out. Her back became bent and finally this very old woman could only uh, stand there holding on to a stick and as she walked away she only could take a few steps and then she fell and died. Queen Kema was shocked and she stood there. She could not move anymore. After a little while, then the Buddha addressed her, saying, My beautiful Kema, just as the body of this old woman is the nature of your body, there is nothing pure, beautiful and permanent. Let go, let go of your attachment to the body and you will discover the freedom of the heart. And it is said that due to her perfections, Queen Kema understood and she actually then uh, ordained as a bhikkhuni and uh, became fully enlightened. So the essence that we can extract from our body is our virtuous conduct, sila in Pali. The way we use our body for our bodily and verbal actions can either be wholesome or unwholesome. There are certain guidelines which regulate our bodily and verbal actions. And these guidelines point to wholesome, beneficial and positive actions, which in turn will produce wholesome, beneficial and positive results. In Buddhism, these guidelines are known as the precepts. Lay people often observe the five precepts where as meditators uh, often take the eight precepts, at least in Burma. So the merit that is gained by observing these precepts cannot be destroyed by any of the five enemies. Fire and water cannot do any damage, nor can thieves, authorities or disloyal children. The merit from uh, observing sila is ours and under the right conditions it will bear fruit, either in this life or the ones to come. Virtuous people strive to keep these guidelines pure and so with repeated practice a virtuous conduct becomes second nature. Then the five precepts are no longer seen as a restriction or limitation, but rather they are seen as a support or as a beautiful practice to enhance our life. 
the Venerable Damananda was a Sri Lankan-born Buddhist monk who lived more than 50 years in Malaysia. He died about four years ago. And he relates, uh, or he related, a letter that was written to him by a good friend of his. This friend was a well-known Western Buddhist scholar uh, who had died 30 years ago. And soon after that scholar's death, the Venerable Dhammananda received a letter from him. Obviously, that letter was written before he died. And so in the letter, he said, You will be happy to know that I died today. There are two reasons for this. Firstly, you will be relieved to know that my suffering from the sickness has finally ended. And secondly, since I became a Buddhist, I have faithfully observed the five precepts. As a result, I know that my next life cannot be a miserable one. The five precepts are also called Nicca Gahudhamma. Nicca means permanent, everlasting, not changing. It's the opposite of Anicca that we are more familiar with, impermanence. Garu means worthy of respect and Dhamma means Dhamma, um, everything that exists or the law of nature, the law of cause and effect. And so Nicca Garu Dhamma means that the five precepts are guidelines or dhammas that we should always permanently respect. So as I said, a pure and virtuous conduct, sila, is the essence that we can extract from our body. The observance of sila is a meritorious deed that supports us in our endeavor to live a happy and contented life now and in the future. And above all, sila is a necessary and basic foundation for the practice of meditation. Only when we are free from unwholesome bodily and verbal actions, are we free from the resulting disturbing thoughts or emotions? And only then is it possible to uh, concentrate the mind and gain insights into the true nature of phenomena. Sila can actually also be seen as an act of generosity. Dana. By refraining from hurting and killing being and killing living beings, we offer fearlessness. And likewise, by refraining 
from the other unwholesome bodily and verbal actions, we can offer, we can give trust, harmony, truthfulness and security. And these offerings are more precious than anything we can buy. For this reason, the Buddha said that observing the five precepts creates more merit than, for example, offering food to a Buddha or an Arahant, a fully liberated person. And the Buddha also said that it is even more powerful in creating wholesomeness than offering a complete monastery to the Sangha. Many years ago, when I heard this for the first time, I was quite surprised. But then I reflected that with, with enough money, it's very easy to offer a whole monastery. However, to keep one's virtue pure is not so easy and no amount of money can buy it. And just as a little aside, the practice of dana is of course not limited to offer only material things. We can also offer and share our skills, our knowledge, our time or effort. Now we come to the third part in our life which plays an important role. This is the mind, or we can call it the heart and the mind. And with this we mean everything that takes place in our heart and mind, such as all kinds of thoughts, emotions, mental states, images, fantasies. And through the practice of meditation, we have come to realize that these thoughts and emotions are also not everlasting or permanent. A thought comes up, stays a little while and then disappears. Or an emotion overwhelms us and keeps us caught for some time, but then eventually it will dissolve and disappear again. And even opinions and beliefs that we have held dear for many years can change and they can even turn into their complete opposite. For example, for 31 years I firmly believed that it was impossible for me to become a nun. Music and dance played an important role in my life and so I became a music and dance teacher. I also started to practice meditation in my late teens, but to give up music and dance was an uh, absolute impossibility, I thought. Therefore, I never considered even the possibility of taking up ordination, which uh, involves to observe 
certain uh, rules. And one of them in the Buddhist context is to refrain from singing, dancing and listening to music. But then, after a long period of intensive meditation in Burma, I noticed a profound and completely surprising change in my mind. The belief that I could not survive without music and dance turned out to be wrong. Three years of intensive practice had transformed the mind in such a way that I no longer needed music and dance to be happy and feel fulfilled. I had to admit that even without music and dance, I was happier than before. And this is why I'm still a nun. Sayadaw U Indaka, one of my teachers, has described this transformation in his book on the Bojangas, the factors of enlightenment. <coughs> and I'd just like, <coughs> like to read a little portion of it. At the Chamya Yekta Meditation Center in Mobi, there was a Swiss nun by the name of Aria Nyani. She had a degree from the conservatory in Zurich and was an expert at playing the piano, singing and dancing. She had a natural bent for music and dancing. The piano was her friend and her choice were song and dance. Music and dance were all she lived for. They were the essence of her world. She thought that it was through music and dance that she could experience happiness and joy. She was very successful in her career. In December of 1991, Sayedo Ujanaka was teaching a 10-day meditation retreat just outside of Sydney, Australia. Ariannyani participated in that meditation retreat. Although she had practiced meditation before, this was her first Vipassana meditation retreat. She realized that Vipassana had an extremely fine and delicious taste. As she could not get enough of this lovely and exquisite taste, in September of the next year, she went to the Chamya Yeta Meditation Center in Yangon, in Burma. On the 3rd of September, she ordained as a nun and started to practice meditation. At that time, she was 31. Originally, she thought that she would stay and practice meditation as a temporary nun for three months. After that, she planned to disrobe and go back to Switzerland to continue singing, dancing and playing the piano. 
With this in mind, she followed the instructions respectfully and practiced diligently. After three months, she realized that the time had passed very quickly. In fact, it did not feel as if three months had passed at all. Since the meditation was progressing very well, she continued to practice for another two and a half years. By that time, it was as if she had embraced a new life because everything had changed. Although previously her closest friend had been the piano, her best friend was now the Dhamma. In the past, her interest had been singing and dancing. Now it was practicing meditation. Previously she thought that she had wanted to bring happiness and joy to people through the medium of music and dance. But now she decided that she wanted people to experience joy and happiness through the Dhamma. So that's how Saida U Indaka put it. <laughs> so seeing the fleeting and changing nature of the mind, we have to admit that the mind is also not, not something stable or permanent. And we do not find a solid core in the mind which is indestructible or unchanging. The heart and the mind is subject to impermanence in the same way as are the body and our material possessions. And when we look at the mind, the heart a bit closer during our meditation practice, we find that it is also subject to the other two general characteristics. It's subject to unsatisfactoriness and not-self. So because the heart and the mind with its ever-changing thoughts and emotions is also subject to anicca, dukkha and anatta, it can also not be the essence. So then we have to look somewhere else to find the essence. So the essence that we can extract from our heart and mind is mental development or mental training. And in Pali this is called bhavana and this is usually translated as meditation. So bhavana means the development of the heart and mind. Bhavana means mental culture or mental training. In the Buddhist tradition, there are two kinds of mental training or mental development. One is the practice of samatha meditation. The other is the practice of vipassana meditation. The aim of samatha meditation is 
the one-pointed concentration of the mind. And so to get this one-pointed concentration of the mind, one focuses the mind on one object all the time. And this leads to calmness, to tranquility, and therefore one feels peaceful and happy. But concentration alone does not lead to wisdom and liberation. Vipassana meditation is often translated as insight meditation. And the aim of Vipassana meditation is the insight into the true nature of all phenomena, like a deep understanding that brings about happiness and peace. And unlike Samatha meditation, one does not concentrate the mind on only one, on only one object, but all mental and physical phenomena can become the object of meditation. So Vipassana meditation leads to an understanding, it leads to insight into the ultimate nature of all existing phenomena and it culminates in the wisdom that puts an end to all suffering or unsatisfactoriness. The merit that can be gained through the practice of meditation is easy to get and it has the most beneficial results for our aim of liberation. Meditation as mental training is not limited to intensive retreats, but it can be applied everywhere and anytime. As I said, meditation is the development of the heart and mind. And so we can also apply this principle in our daily life. All we need is attention and a commitment to stay in the moment. If we make it our aim to stay attentive and mindful in each moment, and uh, if we want to know what is going on in our body and mind, then we can gain the greatest possible benefit from each moment of our life. Isa was a French meditator who practiced meditation for about three months at the center uh, in Burma. After that, she went back to France. About half a year later, she wrote me an email in which she said, Keeping one's balance and quietness in the middle of this world it's very difficult, but at the same time, it urges me even more to practice meditation. This is a beautiful answer to craziness. 
So the investigation of the true nature of all existing phenomena is the essence that we can extract from our heart and mind. Our understanding, our insights and wisdom cannot be destroyed by anything. None of the five enemies can cause any damage to our true understanding. It's ours as long as we are alive and it never leaves us during our journey in samsara. At the time of death, we have to leave behind all our material possessions and also our body. It's only the mind that continues to exist and it's the wholesomeness, the merits and insights that are stored in the continuity of the mind that can be useful later on. As we have seen, dana, sila and bhavana are wholesome and meritorious deeds. Dana is the essence that we can extract from our material possessions. Sila is the essence that we can get from our body. And bhavana is the essence that comes from our heart and mind. Dana, sila and bhavana are the ingredients for a happy and peaceful life right now as well as in the future. Generosity, virtue and meditation are the essence of our life. And this brings us back to the verse from the Dhammapada that I quoted at the beginning of this talk. We can now better understand what the Buddha meant by to avoid all evil, to cultivate good and to purify one's mind. And how we can put this into practice. The value of the Buddha's teaching is not so much in its theoretical logic, but it is much more in its very direct and practical approach of how to put into practice in our life. In the same way as we need certain ingredients to make a bread, such as flour, water, salt and yeast, so do we need the ingredients of dana, sila and bhavana for a happy and fulfilling life. Let's sit quietly for a few moments.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.